cold silence that we don't dare speak. There's a wall between us and a river so deep. We keep pretending that there's nothing wrong. There's a code of silence and it can't go on. Cutting through the matrix on the 25th of November 2008. For newcomers, I always suggest you look into the website cuttingthroughmatrix.com, where you can go through hundreds of previous talks I've given, and you can listen to them at your leisure. And it's a learning process as I give you the shortcuts to understanding the big real world that's all around you, not the one that's been indoctrinated into you. You can also look into Alan AlanWattsSentinel.eu for transcripts which you can download and print up. And they're written in the various languages of Europe. We are, as I say, we're on the big roll into the big new world order at such a speed, really, that the public are intentionally punch drunk because that's why it was planned this way. When you want to bring on crisis after crisis, you create the crisis, whether it's real or imaginary, as, as to the actual cause, as it's presented as a different story. But all you have to do is panic the people, if possible, give them a bit of a panic, and then come out to subdue them with reassuring platitudes that you have it all in hand. And we saw this happening with this big coordinated money scam worldwide when all the banks across the planet apparently suddenly realized that uh, they're the trading stocks and so on was just one big bubble and they just found this out suddenly it just hit them that this massive bubble uh, was above their heads all that time they didn't know that they hadn't a clue and yet for years it's been published in the newspapers of CEOs and bank managers and their movers and shakers being awarded bonuses throughout the year and often at Christmas of one to five to ten million dollars for a bonus and do you think it's just because banks are generous to each other? Banks are the meanest creatures on the, on the planet. Why would they be dishing out this kind of money? Well, you see, that's the payoffs. That's the payoffs for finding ways to rake in more money, utilize, generally, savers' money, and invest it and get quick returns while they give those with deposit accounts maybe 1.5% interest at the bottom. That's the reality of banks. It's all shady deals and so on. Those who have gone against them at the top are dealt with in the same way that those at the Vatican Bank during their scandal were dealt with. And I mean that sincerely. I have a letter here, in fact, from someone who lost a brother who fell out a window after being interrogated at a meeting because he was thought to be a whistleblower. That happened in London. So wherever you have power and money and an elite involved, and you always have an elite involved with power and money, then the rules you go by are completely different than the, the rules they make the public follow. And when people want to blow a whistle, they're dealt with swiftly. Because all of this is part, you see, 
finance, economics is all part of the military-industrial complex. As is your food system, in fact. That's quite another little surprise you find out. It all comes under the same thing of security. So they get away with murder at the top, quite literally. And we saw this crisis come flying on us. And it was obviously uh, controlled. And obviously, again, it was interrelated with every other country. Because it all came out at the same time with the same problem. And then, of course, we saw them looting the taxpayer as always and signing on your great-grandchildren to come. They pay for this massive borrowing they're doing and they've just started uh, paying off each other and laughing up their sleeves as they pocket money. Back with more after this break. through the matrix discussing how crises are created at least presented to the public yet to have all the countries coordinated in that fashion they had to have this planned for probably years and right down to how they'd loot the public make them responsible for bailing out the banks and then of course the main point of it all was to usher in a new economic order to go along with the new, new world order, of course. And the public are going back to sleep. They can still spend a dollar and get something back, some trinket made in China that will last five minutes before it falls apart. So it's on a roll, as I say, into the new system. This, the, the Bretton's Wood Agreement was part one, and the author of that agreement said so to be a, a second order, bring in a new system. And really that's the main point, is getting the ball rolling in that direction till the new economic system comes in, till eventually the power of the purse, your bank account, will be in the hands of governments and they still have a big say in what you purchase and do and so on. And they have to do this as they go into the completely electronic banking system after all they've monitored everything else about you so they must know everything that you're purchasing how much income you're really getting even how much money you're borrowing from friends and so on and then they'll check your friends out to see where they've got the money and so on and so on it's the big brother big time but the public and most of the world has sat back and just gone back to sleep now that the, this crisis has been swiftly dealt with and they've been fleeced, but they don't really mind. In the West, they don't really mind so much. Life goes on. In fact, Madonna apparently just got divorced, and that's the main topic of conversation. So I think for most folk, it truly is over. But there are still some people with some guts left. Maybe they haven't had all the GMO food, mind you, that other countries have had for so many years, that I'm sure is really part of the bio-warfare industry. And this article is from the Scotsman, 24th November 2008, by Omar Valdemarsson. It says, Thousands of Icelanders have demonstrated in Reykjavik to demand the resignation of Prime Minister Geir Hart and Central Bank Governor David Odson. I think David Odson got his name for pocketing, pocketing the odd numbers. 
for failing to stop the country's financial meltdown. It was the latest in a series of protests in the capital since October's banking collapse crippled the island's economy. At least five people were injured, and Horder Torfason, a well-known singer in Iceland and the main organiser of the protests, uh, said the protests would continue until the government stepped down. As crowds gathered in the drizzle before the Althing, the Icelandic parliament on Saturday, Mr. Torfason said, they don't have our trust and they no longer are legitimate. The value of the Icelandic krona, that's their dollar basically, has been cut in half since January. So the purchasing power is half of what it was. Since four Nordic countries as well as the International Monetary Fund have pledged to lend the country a combined $4.6 billion to help revive this deflated economy, the loan would be the first by the IMF to a Western nation since 1976. It's interesting, too, when the International Monetary Fund comes in, they take over the affairs of the country. I don't think people realize that. They have a, a basically a main say with the Prime Minister as to policy in all different directions, all kinds of policies in that country. Maggie Thatcher had them in Britain when she was in power, and they are pretty ruthless with the economy. It says, one young man climbed onto the balcony of the Althing building where the president appears upon inauguration and on Iceland's National Day and hung a banner reading, Iceland for Sale. And then it's got the, the price tag attached to it. The amount of the loan the country is getting from the IMF this is a separate group of 200 to 300 people gathered in front of the city's main police station, throwing eggs and demanding the release of a young protester being held there. Police in riot gear used pepper spray to drive back an attempt to free the protester, during which several windows at the police station were shattered. The protester was later released after his fine was paid. As daylight began to wane, demonstrators drifted away into the nearby coffee shops. Here, as currency tumbles, the price of a coffee has shot up by about one-third since before the crisis struck. The demonstrators accuse a government elected last year of not doing enough to regulate the banking industry and have called for early elections. Next election is not required until 2011. Well, people there have had enough, you see, and at least they're voicing their displeasure to the authorities but I'd like to know who set up Iceland to get into the mess they ended up in because the Iceland was, was basically the banking place to have your stuff invested and people and even charities were having their, their money, world charities were having their money invested there because it gave the highest return on interest. Well, see, that kind of game is a Ponzi scheme because it depends on everyone keeping their money in and not taking it out. It's a pyramid scheme. That's how all these banks operate. And that's what happens if you have little savings. And the, and the manager says, well, why don't you keep them in in this, this, this next part, this next deal we've got for you? I don't want you taking the money out. But any returns they do give out depend upon more folk coming in all the time. So the more lucrative they make it appear with high interest, yielding, deposits and so on, or savings, the more folk they hope will come in. So it's all based on future people coming in. 
in keeping the Ponzi scheme going. Well, down it went. And everyone at the top must have known what was going on. <laughs> everyone would know what was going on. But it's interesting, too, that even the United States had a department working with the Treasury for 20-odd years, 30 years, to bail out companies when their stocks failed. They'd pump in millions of dollars to get the stocks back up again. How can you have any kind of free trading going on when that, that's happening? It was never free. And you find a lot of these big corporations that were getting bailed out are just CIA assets. They've got hundreds of them. They're real corporations. Just like Britain. Britain has real corporations and crown corporations and the big aircraft companies that make the bombers and all the rest of it are all part of it, the military-industrial complex. They don't pay taxes. They defer them for 15 or 20 years. And even then, they're always crying that they're going under every two or three years and the government comes along and bails them out with a, a cash grant. A grant, not a loan. They bail them out. That happens in Canada with Bombardier, very important company. Every country does the same thing because certain big corporations are integrated totally with the defense industry and security and, of course, the ruling elites who have massive shares in the same companies. I was thinking today of the British system where you have lords in the House of Lords. That's where, by the way, your Santa Claus outfit comes from. If you watch any of the old Shakespearean plays where they, they show you the lords from the House of Lords in Parliament, they wear a Santa Claus outfit with the red pants, the red jacket with the fur trim on it, and the hood as well. It's been altered today, camouflage it a little bit. But Britain had many of these sitting lords with who ran and owned basically the same corporations that had the, the military by the short and curlies. And they loved the Cold War. They loved the Cold War because even though it was, it was assured to the public, and they made sure the public were told this to petrify the public, it would be nuked any time and they had enough nukes to blast the world asunder maybe a hundred million times. But they needed more, you see. Because while well, the Russians were so far ahead of us, meanwhile the Russians were saying the same thing to their own people, that oh, the Americans are so far ahead of us. And this ongoing con game uh, really made people amass vast, vast incredible fortunes, all paid for by the taxpayer for weapons they knew were never ever going to be used. The Lords. The Time Lords, eh? They come down intergenerationally through their family lineages. But at least in Iceland they're having some, letting up some steam about it. They're not too happy. But really, what can we do? Because, you see, when they had the last Great Depression, it didn't plug all the holes and loopholes that brought it on in the first place. And the first one, too, by the way, was also arranged to happen. 
It was arranged to happen to create a situation where farmers would lose en masse, and they did. It was to get more people into the city. In fact, before the Great Depression, 90-odd percent of the American people lived outside cities on the land. After the Depression, 97% of them lived in cities. So it worked. But it also helped to get FDR in, the banker's boy, because that's where he worked, you see, on Wall Street. And he helped set up the new system, the New Deal, as they call it. What we've been given recently for a new economic order is another New Deal to go with the New Deal that the Bush administration gave us. We'll be back with more after this break. cutting through the matrix, just tying up a big system for people who tend not to think too much, for people who think we're just drifting along, and those invisible experts, those battalions of them above you, are just handling everything, kind of like batting away meteorites as they come into Earth with tennis rackets just above your heads. And we're taught to believe that all these big institutions are truly there to help us and serve us. And at the same time, we're also told how helpless we are in a thousand different ways. So that we'd simply give up and allow ourselves to be managed like domesticated sheep. Running people and ruling people is a very, very ancient, ancient art. And part of it it's to do with what the king says. When the king says, this is the new law of the land and this is the new policy for you to, to talk about your country, you better do so. The first ones to do it and adapt to it are the bureaucratic classes. They're very politically correct. They smell the wind very quickly, intuitively, and parrot off whatever they're told to parrot in their little conversations and at cocktail parties. But it's also being used to train society at large. And we, it's mainly through the media and fiction, all the little slogans we hear and little scenes we see through drama. There's always a poor victim, and there's always the masses who are nasty people. Therefore, you must change your opinion and accept that poor person there in that, that fictional play you've just watched. That's how you alter your perception. But here they're going in to to have uh, conversation cops in universities in Canada and elsewhere, of course. And this is from the globeandmail.com in the national section, November the 19th, 2008, by Carly Weeks. It says, your friend's new fuchsia fedora might be hideous, but don't call it gay, or you might get a language lesson from the conversation cops. Students at Queen's University who sprinkle their dialogue with an assortment of homo or retarded could find out the hard way that not everyone finds their remarks acceptable. The Kingston University has hired student facilitators, now you have facilitators, you see, to step in when they overhear homophobic slurs, remarks, bashing women, or racially tinged insults, along with an array of other language that could be deemed offensive. You see, this is just the start of it. They always use the, the typical 
reasons for starting it off, but this is, this is going to include incredible things very shortly. Even questions about things you should be asking. You're not allowed to ask questions about certain topics. They, they borrowed the system, by the way, from the Soviet Union. That's where the term has been translated to be politically correct. That came from the Soviet Union. It says here that that means tete-a-tetes in the residence hallways may no longer be just between friends. If you are having a conversation with offensive content, now, now you're going to have a whole bureaucracy to decide what's offensive. At one time you could say, I'm offended, and nothing happened. That was just, well, too bad. We've all got the right. We've all got the right to be offended. I hope, you know. But having it made into law, that this pisses you off, is a different thing altogether. You see, there's a political agenda behind this. It says, and they're doing it loud enough for a third person to hear, and it's not private, said Jason Laker, Dean of Student Affairs at Queen's. If you're doing anything that's interfering with what other people need to be doing, that's not cool. Cool offends me. I mean, that language actually is so infantile, I'm afraid it offends me. There should be a law about that. The initiative, believed to be part for the first of its kind in Canada, is part of a broader program. So here's the key. It's part of a broader program begun at school this fall to foster diversity. Diversity. And encourage students to think about their beliefs. That's quite amazing, your beliefs. You know, that also includes religion. I hope you realize that. And it's going to go deep and deep into your own personal cultural beliefs in so many ways. It says, but the move is sparking a fresh debate over the line between politically correct behavior and freedom of expression. How can you have the two together? Politically correct behavior and freedom of expression. Some students fear the university's program borders on oppressive, no kidding, no kidding. Having a program like this in place could stifle public discussion if people are worried about their private conversations being monitored, said Angela Hickman, managing editor of the Queen's Journal, a campus newspaper. For a lot of people, their opinions get formed in conversations, and that's true, and so stifling that that is dangerous. If it's stifling, if you're stifling the conversation. The newspaper published in an editorial last week criticizing the program as a lackluster attempt to deal with social issues that could actually create hostility among students. But Mr. Laker said the new intergroup dialogue program, intergroup dialogue program, very robotic, eh? intergroup dialogue program, focuses on respectful, non-confrontational discussions that don't impede freedoms. It's amazing how they can lie like that, isn't it? Eh? This is difficult work. It needs to be done very respectfully, Mr. Laker said. There's really no interference. There's really no interference. Somebody's going to spy on your conversation, but there's really no interference. <laughs> this guy's going to get a job in the government shortly. I'll be back with more after this break. You're listening to the Republic Broadcasting Network because you can handle the truth.
same Alan Watt, we're cutting through the matrix of political correctness. This article goes on to say, says, under the new program, six student facilitators live and work within campus residences. Their mission, so the permission, you see, very military, is threefold to engage students spontaneously by talking to them about an issue that has arisen, for instance, on campus or in the media, to hold movie nights, book readings, or discussions on a range of social issues, and to step in when conflicts arise. So they'll start the conflicts by, by talking about certain issues, and then take note of who is pro or against, and then they'll step in when they have a conflict going. See, this is the same system, the exact same system they had in the Soviet Union. It's being introduced here now. Not by chance. Not by chance at all. And I don't know if people realize that the Nazis also had that with the Gestapo. And on every ship and on every submarine and every battalion, they had uh, an officer of the Gestapo who did the same thing. In the Soviet system, they had them all through the military services and in universities too. It's the same thing. And those were called totalitarian regimes. with all the other signs of the fact that we're living under a totalitarian regime worldwide right now. It says here, that students become uncomfortable when a facilitator calls out someone on an offensive slur. It shouldn't be seen as a bad thing. As Laker said, it means they're forced to think about their choices. They'll go off for sensitivity training. That will come into it too, you see. You've got wrong think, wrong think. It can only be one thing. And it's, if you've got anything else but the, the one thing, you're wrong think. Says that is an acceptable tension to have, he said. I would go further, I would say it's a beneficial tension. So we're going to create tensions here in universities. You used to call that instigating problems. So he's an instigator, hiring other instigators who are now called facilitators. I've mentioned before about the terminology and how they altered the words to alter the perception. And they do it all the time. And I'd like to know, too, who put this forward in the first place, because they obviously understand the Soviet system. Remember Norman Dodds, a senator who was sent to, to the Rees Commission and find out about the big foundations, and uh, the CEO of the Ford Foundations told them their job was to help alter the U.S. in such a way, through propaganda, media, etc., and universities and students and all that kind of stuff, so they could blend them seamlessly with the Soviet system. Well, you see, it's all here. And the Soviet system was not designed by a bunch of people in Russia. Look to London and look to the city. It says here, but some students wish it would remain a discussion between friends rather than a dialogue with a university-appointed facilitator. If the facilitators jump into a group conversation, there is hostility from students who don't want to be approached in what they consider private social settings, said the editorial published in the Canvas newspaper. Intergroup dialogue programs are well established at many universities in the United States. You'd already have them in some universities. This is going to be worldwide, of course. But many of those consist of credit courses taught by faculty members or student facilitators who have received rigorous training over several semesters in a classroom environment. Being taught to be good Gestapo, you see. 
The Queen's facilitators went through an intensive 11-day training course that touched on a variety of social issues and possible scenarios. Patricia Guren, Professor Emeritus of Psychology and Women's Studies at the University of Michigan, is one of the founders of the intergroup dialogue concept. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. So the names are starting to come out, you see. While she didn't comment specifically on the program launched at Queen's, she warned that such activities could backfire if they're not carried out by highly trained individuals who have experience with a variety of conflicts and social issues. It takes a lot of skill to do this work, Mrs. Gurren said, or Ms. Gurren said, in an interview yesterday, I guess I said Mrs. I might have entered. She said that facilitators who haven't been trained properly could end up reinforcing defense mechanisms of privileged students. White males say this is more white male bashing. What are they learning from that? Reinforcement of defensiveness rather than opening up and exploring is the consequence. So they want white males to examine themselves. A sort of body fetish, I guess. Daniel Hayworth is one of the six student facilitators who began their work at Queen's in August. A graduate student, Mr. Hayworth, said the group received extensive training for 11 days and has already had success talking to students about a variety of social issues, meaning getting them to think the way they're supposed to think. It's the same technique they used with Ireland, you see. They'll keep hitting them with that vote until they get it right, because there's only going to be one right, you see. He said much of their work is passive and done on a casual level. For instance, they had a poster campaign on campus earlier this year using the phrase, that's so gay, to grab attention and then to point out why it's offensive to some. I used to think it was happy. That's what it used to mean. You're happy, you see. Reading songs, old folk songs with gay in it. Yeah, the, the three cavaliers in the old books, they had the gay cavaliers. They're all happy. It's happy guys go around killing people. It's helping to create an atmosphere of inclusivity, Mr. Hayward said. In his article, but watch your language, it says here. It says here, if you say that's so gain a conversation, if a student writes a homophobic, racist, or other derogatory remark in a public space, such as on a resident poster or a classmate's door, if a student avoids a classmate's birthday party for faith-based reasons, oh, can you believe that? If a student avoids a classmate's birthday party for faith-based reasons, they'll have to come in and give you sensitivity training without and work on you. In fact, maybe having a faith at all means that they'll have to work on you as well. Yep, secular humanism with the agenda at full swing. And people still think they're free. And here's people in Iceland rioting. Astonishing, eh? It takes a small population of people who've uh, maybe eaten better than the rest of us to stand up and create havoc to be heard because it certainly ain't happening in the West when it does happen in the West it'll be because people are starving and I'm not kidding about that that will come because food is a weapon and when they stop the food coming during the big crisis times that are planned by the Department of Defense that's when the mob riot they forgo all the chances they could have done when they could have done something about it in a more peaceable manner 
and a rioting mob is easily dealt with by the authorities. That's all through the Masonic literature, by the way. They always talk about the mob, the mob, the mob, and how to use the mob as well. Now we'll go to the, the phones now, and we've got Logan from Texas. Are you there, Logan? Hello, Logan. Can you hear me? Yes. Um, I have. A, I just want to get your take on something. Uh, recently, had a chance to get acquainted with a neighbor, and um, so he came over and. Uh, Basically, I mean, we felt we had a lot of common, so, uh, you know, threw out some, some uh, you know, topics for him, and it, including the New World Order. And mm-hmm. so he, you know, weighed in as far as, you know, his perspective goes, because he, he's, he follows the Baha'i faith. Uh-huh. And uh, so it was an interesting thing that I did some research on and just wanted to get your, what, what your take on that was, if you, you know... Um, what your thoughts about that were? About who? About the Baha'i faith. Well, the Baha'i faith. Um, right. Because I, it, kinda, it seems to be you know, a key aspect as far as uh, the one world religion, basically. It is. It's, it's the only one, in fact, the United Nations has said on its own site that it authorizes and backs. Because it's all-inclusive. You understand, under the UN Charter, all faiths that will be allowed to exist. Right, it was supposed to be what the uh, UN Charter was based on. Yeah, all faiths. Uh, and it didn't start there, though. You see, they had a meeting in the United States in the 1800s. It was a world meeting. It was an interfaith meeting. I have the book. It was printed at the time. It came out right after it. And they said they set up a sort of world-type government. It's all coming, because they, they knew it was coming, League of Nations. turned to the United Nations, but... It said that the only religions that eventually would be allowed to exist would be those who had laid no claim to exclusively or exclusivity of truth. So if you, if you accept that, that um, no religion is, is actually true, 100% true, laying claim on absolute truth, uh, um, if you said that yours was the truth, you would not be allowed into it. You'd have to destroy your religion. But if you accepted that, uh, that all the other religions were just as true as yours, which again is not double think, it's multiple think, uh, then that was okay. Well, the Baha'i faith was created. It's not an old religion uh, to eventually accept all other religions. But it's also got a bit of a mystery behind it too, because it's highly Freemasonic, and including its building as well. If you look at the building structure from above to the top uh, view of it, Right. and side view and so on. Uh, so it's, um, it's definitely uh, an authorized religion to replace other religions of the world. Yeah, it seems to give people a positive twist about the New World Order. You know, oh, it does. It's, 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 it's all totally pro-UN, uh, world government, and so on. I know some of the guys who eventually got to be security guards uh, for their temple uh, for the United Nations and every one of them had a criminal record. <laughs> it seems to be a, there's, a, there's a sensor in the United Nations building. That's correct. Yeah. Yeah. So anyway, I was going to you know, go down to one of the Sunday, Sunday church things and you know, see, see what others had to say about uh, you know, some of the films I've got from you and from Alex Jones. Yes. Mm-hmm. Anyway, that's all I got about. Okay. Yeah, it's quite an interesting little history it's got. But yet any religion 
that claims to be exclusive, have exclusive truth in it, is to be destroyed by all the forces that can be put against it through media, propaganda, and so on, yeah. and, and education. I think what he was trying to convey to me was just that it doesn't have to be discriminatory, and that's actually the, one of the main things, is they, they, they eliminate all prejudice. That's right. That's right. And to teach you to, to love a world government uh, more than you'll have loved any other government, if anyone's dumb enough to do so. But, um, but that is the agenda with it, absolutely. Uh, and you see, they knew, again, when they were dreaming up the idea of world government, they'd have to bring in a world religion. And under the, the, the Baha'i faith, you can bring in all religions, the earth worship, and everything falls right into it quite happily. Uh, reincarnation, whatever, you, whatever that has been promoted to be part of the New World religion, uh, that's all of the New Age as well. Um, the greening of the planet, all this stuff, uh, that falls right into the Baha'i. So they were, they were, they were set up for their purpose. Yeah. Well, that's about it. That's it, yeah. Well, thanks for calling. But yeah, you can look into that. And <clears throat> you can see on their, on their website uh, this, this amazing building. And go into the founder too, and if you do your real homework, you'll find out all of his connections as well, and who helped back him. And that tells you all you need to know. It's uh, it's interesting, as I've quoted many times, a book by Gorbachev, a man who says in this book, the one that's called towards a new civilization. He says, "I myself am an atheist," and then about a chapter on, he says, "We," and he was part of the team. He says, "We are creating a religion for the world." So he's quite open about it. He's a bunch of atheists creating a religion that people are meant to believe in. And they'll make sure that they do believe in it. And he said it must be based on a form of earth worship. But of course, they'll give you specialists with white coats, the new priesthood, who'll decide what's right and wrong and what the earth wants. Because you can't. Well, you always get the occasional one who will say that they can hear the earth talking to them. Just like you hear some crazy people in con men saying they hear God talking to them, or God told me to raise a million dollars, like one evangelist said, or he'd go off the air, and by God, he got his million dollars. So maybe, maybe there was something to it, eh? But, but yeah, they create religions for the public and for a new world order, yet they always create a new, a new God, in other words. And this one is based on... It's not just religion. It takes an economy as well. You understand that this whole new world system... This greening world. And remember the greening idea where man is supposed to be at war with the planet and destroying the planet. The, the, the dream uh, of the Club of Rome, that's the one who dreamed up the whole, the whole thing, that falls into the new religion. And we're all going to get taught we're, we're here to serve the planet. And in this new equal society, some will be more equal and they'll wear white coats and they'll wear business suits, they'll be politicians. And they'll tell us what the planet wants and what we have to do to, to help Mother Earth. You see? That's how it's going to be. And people think, well, they can never do that. Well, they've introduced religions before and used them very, very well. Along with the troops they used to send in to India and Africa and places far away when the, when the British Empire was at its height, along with the trains... And the, the tracks are laid, of course, by the taxpayer of Britain, the all of the military-industrial complex, so they can go and loot those countries. They also brought in carriages full of 
preachers and Bibles to subdue the natives. Sometimes they'd send them in beforehand if they, if they could get in unmolested and travel freely. And that's what was referred to as a softening up crew. They went in to soften the heads of people who were ready to fight people coming in to take the land off them. But if you sent the preachers in first then and told them not to kill, killing was bad, even though in the Hebrew version it says, thou shalt not commit murder, which means you can kill to defend yourself. It altered it for the Christians, you see. And they gave them all these Bibles, and they teach them that uh, nothing, you know, God's, God's place was in heaven. If a, they'd suffer on earth, but they'd get this beautiful reward in a, another place if they allowed themselves to suffer here. And that was used by the British Empire to the maximum. They used people like David Livingston, who goes down in history, has been a great, a great uh, man of travel for the Christian faith. And in, in fact, he was promoted and funded completely by the Royal Society, the same bunch that backed Darwin. And there were big business leaders in there as well. And they wanted to know what kind of plunder they could take out of the natural resources of Africa. And he was incredibly, Livingston was incredibly financially rewarded for all of that. It's amazing how the whitewash history, to give us a, a Walton version of Little House or Little House on the Prairie, complete fake history. And the public want to believe it because it's so nice and pretty. No factory towns there, eh? Back with more after these messages. cutting through the matrix, trying to get some sense into a world that some think is simply going crazy, but it's not going crazy, it's planned that way, as the war on your mind continues. It's amazing to me how they bring up conspiracy theory, oh, conspiracy theory. The big boys put that out, you know, that whole, that term, so that the public themselves will start using it, and sure enough, if you try to tell someone a bit of truth, I call you a conspiracy theorist. The newspapers are using the term all the time. And yet history is made up of nothing but conspiracies. Where men get together and plan to take countries to war, to plunder what their targets are, what they hope to get out of it. It's always a massive financial reward for someone, or a few. But it's never called a conspiracy, it's called strategic planning. It's the same with the United States, with its foreign policy. They call it foreign policy. Or the group of the Bush belongs to the New American Century group. They published in the 90s their agenda that they came up with in their own secret meetings about taking countries over, starting with Afghanistan, then Iraq, then Iran, Syria, and so on. But there's no conspiracy theory when it comes to them planning this kind of stuff, is there? No, just for the people at the bottom who start using intelligence. They call it intelligence. They, want, they don't want intelligence passed around. And to combat intelligence is passed around, they make sure they put people out there to mix up aliens and shapeshifters and, and so on. And the old mystique of 
the stuff they put out in the 1800s to confuse people too. They rehash all of that until it sounds bizarre and fantastic and surrealistic. And that's the whole intent of it. That's called counterintelligence. Therefore, when you stick to the intelligence, you're so labeled as a cook. And they'll laugh at you and say, well, yeah, you probably think the aliens are behind it. Stuff like that, you see. And they have them out there. They have them out there doing the rounds, heavily financed, heavily publicized. They make sure that those on the fringes, as they call them, the group they're going for, the target group, will jump on the bandwagon and sound like utter, utter nutters when they're explaining the conspiracy, when they mix in all the stuff I'm talking about here, and then bring aliens into it. I say aliens are doing it. I say aliens are spraying the sky, they'll tell you. That came out from the government at first, you know. The whole sky spraying thing. They, they put in papers saying people have seen UFOs doing strange things. Sometimes they look like black helicopters and sometimes they change into a disc. That was put out by intelligence services. And the UFOs jumped on it right away. You have to stick to the facts if you want to be credible. And if your nose detects someone telling you the facts and bringing in something with a twist to it and to the bizarre, then you're being had. I can't stress that enough because it's stepping up even within the patriot community. The big boys cover every base and they make sure that your thoughts are not your own. Even those things that which excite you. Lots of music coming in for tonight. I should remind you all to donate as well. Keep me going because you do keep me going. Don't ask for money for any of the shows or the information I put out. So the information to do so is on my website. From Hamish myself, up in a snowy Ontario, Canada, it's good night to me, your God or your gods. Go with you.